They say everyone has at least one booking them. I've got my book, Making Conversations Count, How to Use the Telephone, on Amazon, and even surprised myself that that became a bestseller. In this episode, we're making conversations about self-publishing count. What's new, Wendy Wu? Well, lots of you are still taking the telephone influence test. You can do that by following the show notes link at makingconversationscount.studio forward slash podcast. It's been really great to be able to send out my tips to those that take the test and start the conversation. We've got some reviews this week and a couple of them have hit me by surprise. I was in a networking room and one lady just had to tell me all about how one of the episodes had impacted her. So Anna B in Cheltenham, thank you so much. You absolutely made my day when you told me that after listening to Steve Judge's episode that you'd found the Professional Speaking Association and you joined in your area and you're ready to start creating that talk that will impact people because you're a health coach. You've got a really, really important message there, Anna, and I'm so excited. I predict a TEDx talk one day soon. Also, I had this email. Hi, Wendy, just found your show after searching for the Vox Conversations podcast. Someone had recommended it to me, but I loved the look of your podcast with a chalkboard and I wasn't disappointed. What a great show, Rohan in Adelaide. Well, Rohan, I'm so glad you like the chalkboard. That's another accidental marketing mistake that actually I love too. Thank you for tuning in in Adelaide. We're also still in the charts in Colombia. So let's get on with the show. I need to introduce you today's guest. It is Anne Hobbs of Forward Thinking Publishing. She started out back in 2015 after creating her own book that is an Amazon number one bestseller repeatedly and it's called Kick-Ass Your Life. Now you've got to stay tuned because not only does Anne talk to us about self-publishing and the self-help that she likes to help people to get their book out there, but you're really going to want to hear her conversation that counted. It left me sideways and lost for words. A powerful story indeed. We met through the lovely Jill Chitty's Morning Cuppa networking, didn't we? You just sort of suddenly got my attention because of the way that you did things. I've got your book, which says, Kick Ass Your Life. And with a title like that, who could not buy it and have a look through. So, Anne, just tell us, what spurred you to write the book? I had a bit of a hot, sweaty evening when I woke up in a mild panic, thinking I had so much information that I needed to let people know about, because I'd been coaching for about 10 years at that time, and I'd coached so many people, and I thought, right, if something happens to me, then all that knowledge has gone out the window. I wrote that in four weeks. Wow, you were driven. Yeah, I was, because I'm like, how can I die if I don't get this information out? And so that was my motivation. Goodness me. Was there any particular reason that you thought you might die? 
know, you know, when you, somebody says these stupid coaching questions to you, like, what would you do if you had limited time to live or something like that? And I'm like, oh, shit, I really want to write a book. <laughs> so this was your first book, was it? This um, was my first book, yeah. Yeah. You mentioned that you're coaching, but you, that's not necessarily what you're doing now, is it? So tell everybody how you help people. I help other people publish kind of their books. I'm interested in people that have gone through adversity and they've come out the other end, basically. And that's what we write about, because I really want to help other people. And I've done that like, in the last 20 years through coaching and therapies. But now I help them so they can get the information in the book. So that's the type of books I publish. I help people write them and then we publish them. So what sort of stories have you been involved with? If you've got the information out there that's going to help other people. So I've done a yoga journal. We did that. I've done, I'm working with a woman that's overcome cancer. I think she had like two weeks to live and she overcome that. And that was like 10 years ago. So she's writing about that to help other people. So it's really a combination of things. It isn't just one thing. I mean, I'm very much one for family, for a local community, but there are some stories that translate across boundaries and across maps that are truly global for us to learn from. And it's great that you're able to help people get their story out because it's a little bit like the podcasts that we're doing. It's those stories that other people can hear and go, I understand that I can resonate with that feeling. I needed to hear that today for me to feel better or to know that I can carry on. I'd probably been in that position 10 years earlier and I didn't know how to get out of it. I just didn't know how to. And it took me probably 10 years to figure it out. And I didn't want that anybody else to be in that place. Like, why would it take you so many years? Now I have the information. I can get you out of that in a week because I've been through it. I've got the T-shirt. And I think that's why people want to share their kind of adversities because they're like well I've got out of it it's taken me a long time to work it out so now I can teach other people and I think that is what I like is that I can get you out of there that position I was in 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 kind of weeks and a lot quicker that ties in really with another guest that I spoke to recently Nick Venius he was talking about big magic and how an idea comes to you so the way that you described waking up in a sort of sweaty panic that you really needed to do that sounds very much like an idea had hit you and said, you're the person to deliver this into the world now. And if you don't sit up and listen, I'm going to go find somebody else who will. The universe works in a funny way because they give you like a little tap tap and then they give you a bit of a slap if you're not listening. And then the sledgehammer comes. <laughs> I think I had the sledgehammer because I woke up in a complete panic. And I thought, oh, yeah, I need to start writing. And someone else said to me, um, are you going to write any more books? I'm like, no, never going to write a nonfiction book ever again. And I'm now in the midst of the third book of Feminine Power. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, never say never. That's kind of the thing isn't it you should never say no I wanted to write a novel and now and then I just had this idea about feminine power and kind of what that means so yeah I mean there's lots of stages to being a woman I think you know that historically seen as like the maiden the mother and the crone aren't they 
I think people forget that there are transitions between those three states too, without going any deeper than that. I know that I've done one transition and I think I'm probably going through another. (laughs) Everybody that I've spoken to that's in my age group has said that afterwards they've been left feeling menopausal, even though they're not necessarily menopausal, and that it's highlighted weaknesses and things like this. I suppose it's still good that we're still talking about the things that affect us. Even if we don't feel that great about it, it makes us feel better having talked about it. Yeah, and it is because people think all about self-help and self-development is all about thinking positively and being positive all the time. And so when somebody says to you, how are you? You go, I'm fabulous. But actually, you know, you're not. So these are the type of conversations I want to have. It's like if you're spiritual or in self-help, I'm not positive all the time. I have sadness. I get low sometimes. And it's just your emotions. And it's how you navigate through that. But no one wants to know when you're feeling a bit shitty. You can't be on a high all the while, can you? That would be impossible. Yeah, you don't learn. When I'm positive, I don't learn anything. But when I'm on my knees a little bit, you think, right, okay, I need to sort this out or I need to change this. We don't do change until we hit the wall. Mm, It's that cycle of wheel, isn't it? That if you're at the top, that's great. But you've got to go down and work your way back out of that to get to the top again. You won't change if your life is going fabulous, will you? You You don't need to. So you need these kind of smacks. And he's like, come on, <laughs> there's a more out there. But it's this perception that, that you have to be okay. You have to be positive all the time. And you don't because you won't learn anything. And of course, if it was that easy, everybody would be doing it, wouldn't they? <laughs> and we've all learned all that- by now. <laughs> <laughs> what is the meaning of life really, Anne? You know, it is about those heartbeats as I see them, you know, the ups and downs that you have to go from chapter to chapter. And it's great that you're an advocate in helping those stories come to light through the work that you do and the experiences that you've been through. It's like helping others. I've always helped other people. As a coach, I think I'd gone to that level where I couldn't go anywhere. Or maybe I hit burnout and I'd had enough of coaching, trying to sort out people's problems all the time. You do get to a certain point where you can't do it anymore. So I kind of literally threw all my self-development books out the window. I'm like, that's it. No more self-development. I'm not doing any more took them all to the charity shop and then um I just got phone calls uh, from people saying because they've known that I'd written a book and they went right you published don't you you've self-published oh can you help me I've never pushed it I've never gone out really to see clients or pushed it at all this business people pick up the phone to me and they say well you know how to do it don't you yeah well can you help me I'm still helping people (laughs) (laughs) but that's the point though isn't it is that you've obviously left such an impression on people from your previous role in coaching that they would come to you for that help and be able to trust you to help them with that. Because having gone through the process myself of publishing a book, the writing it for me wasn't stressful. It was the marketing it afterwards that was hard work. But if you're stuck with the what to put down and how to format it and you know all of those different things, then you really do need somebody that's on your side that understands the processes. 
Yeah, and I think a lot of people ask me, am I going to do fiction in my business? I'm like, no, because forward thinking publishing is all about helping other people. I know you can do that through fiction, but I understand that process people need to go through. So in Kickass, it was very much about what I'd gone through, through the adversity I had and how I got out of it. Now, when I published that, I had to have a lie down for a week. Because it's like everybody's going to know my story. Everybody's going to know about me then. So that is the challenge with your emotions when you're writing. So I need to understand that. And I just had a conversation today and she said she sent her manuscript out uh, to someone else and they just trashed it, trashed her whole story. And she felt uh, violated. And I'm like, yeah, because they didn't show that respect that person yeah it's like we all attract our tribe don't we so I didn't even contemplate sending it to a publisher for review because what they are looking for is going to be different to what I want to deliver so if it's on my terms and I don't sell many that's my bag if it goes down well it's because I've found the people that need it Yeah, and that's why I like the control. I wanted mine to be published by Hay House. I was actually turned down because I didn't have 150,000 followers. And for me, that's not authentic. It's like, I may have 150,000 followers, but one of them may buy it. I don't know. It's like, I could go on Fiverr, couldn't you, and get your followers. (laughs) But that's not authentic for me. So I wanted that control, That so I self-published that one because I wanted that control. But what I teach people now is that you're probably not going to make your money back from the book. But if you sell something else, so we upsell our coaching, it helps us to be that expert in our business. It gives that people that trust if they've read kind of your book. So that's how I get them to get their money back from their book. You have to look at the bigger picture. I agree with you there, Anne. And I'm shocked about the followers situation because, (laughs) goodness, I mean, 150,000 followers, I can't imagine that. I mean, followers are fickle anyway because they're following you, but do they really follow? I don't know that they really do. I think that online engagement is so vast that it's very difficult to cut through the noise and find those people and get their attention anyway. But I agree. I mean, I didn't want the book to be my success and I wasn't relying on the book sales to pay my income. And if I had have relied on that, I'd have been sorely disappointed just to warn the listeners. But what you can get from that is, you know, that initial launch and getting that bestseller status. That's the credibility that you need. And certainly from what I'm hearing from your clients and yourself, Anne, it's from the same value of wanting to pass the knowledge on so that they've got a starting point. They can do it on their own if that's their only route. If it is that they can then continue that journey with whoever's written the book, that's where the value is, not just for the person who's written the book, but the people reading. Yeah, because you're going to capture all types of clients, aren't you? So when I was coaching, you'd get the client that weren't quite ready. You get another one that was really ready. So the book is for the people that aren't ready. They've got the information, but they won't implement it because you don't. So when I wrote that, I was a bit mindful that I've given them all the content, all the information that I had in my head. They could go away kind of and use it and they wouldn't need me. 
But then I got to a point where it's actually everybody needs accountability. And even I have a page now. It's like, I won't do it unless, so I won't do my book unless I have an editor. That's all booked in. You can give them all the content, but they won't necessarily take it into action. It's really for that book that you're covering the whole range of clients, aren't you? People that aren't ready and the people that are ready. But you're giving them that information that they're giving hope that they can change it if they want to. That's it. And I was having a conversation similar to that this morning is that if you say that you haven't got time, it's because you're not ready or not willing. This, you know, Because if it's something you really want to do, you will find the time. To do it and that's where I got the book title from because one of my clients actually said to me I'm a kick-ass coach <laughs> <laughs> and I hated that for many years because every networking event I went in they went oh here's Anne here's the kick-ass she'll kick-ass you and things like that and I'm like oh no but actually it did sum up my style of coaching and that's what I do with editing it's like I have to be emphatic towards them because they've written about their lives but my job is also to give them kind of the truth. If you change this and move this around, we're going to make a better book. They gave me two changes. And I think one was a grammatical sentence that wasn't right. And the other was the format. And I was not going to bend on the format. I wanted it that style because I wanted it to be a workbook. I wanted the space on the page for people to write in and use it to be a living book. So I think I did all right, but it's interesting, isn't it? And it all comes down to having conversations around sometimes not necessarily what we want, but what we need. Yeah. And it's listening to that as a publisher and editor. I'm not, it's kind of my view is my view. So when I had Kickass, I had a very good editor. I think she did some of the big Hay House and names editing so when I got the book back she was like oh change this change that change that and I think oh god I've got to change oh no oh, oh I've got to change it because she said it but actually I stepped back and went well I'd never say that or I don't like that so no 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 so I say to my clients it's like it's a my opinion and it's like I'm looking from kind of a different set of eyes but you can say no if that doesn't fit in with what you want. It's got to sit uh, yeah. in the heart, hasn't it? In your words. So if you don't use those words, don't say them. Somebody said to me once that having your own book is a little bit like running down the street naked, allowing people to throw whatever they want at you. So you've got to be prepared for the feedback, good, bad, ugly, indifferent, because everybody has an opinion. Yeah, they have. And you're not going to speak to everybody. I won't because I'm that type of coach that if you want someone to handhold you and go, oh, there, there, I'm not that type of coach. I can imagine you ripping the plaster off. And she came in with this big story, but it wasn't serving her. And I could see this. And she's like, and you could hear she told it like a thousand times and it was getting worse and worse and worse. And I sat there and I said, right, okay, I've listened to it. And I really understand you are really poorly, but can we do a different story? And she just sat there and I thought, right, this woman can do one or two things. She can get up and smack me in the face (laughs) or leave. (laughs) And then she went, thank you for that. It's changed my life. No one ever has said that to me before because I think I was brave enough. It wasn't serving her any longer. There are certain things that we don't say to each other 
because we don't want to hurt each other's feelings. But then we're not really being true, you know, friends, family, business colleagues. It doesn't matter the sphere of conversation, does it? It's difficult sometimes to get somebody else to see what everybody else sees. Yeah, and I think I've got some really great friends that don't allow me to do that. And I'm like, they are the wonderful friends. If I sit there and say someone, oh, yeah, that's really bad, isn't it? not helping them because they're then falling into their pit of crap I'm falling in it with them I'm not serving them and they're not going to get out of it yeah I have a saying that I didn't realize that I said so much until you've just mentioned that is that if you're going to go and do that something my husband at the moment's got a bad neck I came close to booking him into the chiropractor to go and get an initial consultation to see what's wrong and he said no I'm not going and I said well don't moan about it ever again then And he sat on the sofa a bit later and went, uh," and I went, I told you not to moan about it because if you're not prepared to take action, I can't give you the sympathy that you're looking for. The thing you talk to people about, it doesn't serve you because you're just having a, it's okay to have a moan. So I have a moan and a a bit of a groan, but then you've got to change something. Yes. You can't keep moaning like 10 years later. (laughs) Nobody wants to hear that. Nobody wants that person in their life that carries on. But I think there's few people that will actually say actually what they're feeling. Although you've got to be sensitive, haven't you? I wouldn't tell anybody. But you have to say it in a way that comes across a really authentic I think that's what I do. Mm, I think you tell a good story there, Anne. I think you've nailed it. Everybody that I invite on the show, I always ask them to think about a conversation that created a turning point so they can share with the listeners because, you know, I consider you to be at the top of your field in terms of how you're helping the customers and people in your business community. I think it's important for people to hear the stories of conversations that this happens to everybody, different situations, everybody faces adversity or change. And sometimes it's that conversation that can really be that pivotal moment can't it one conversation that completely turned my life around was when my mum rang to say that my sister was killed so that was like 21 years ago so I just sat there peeling potatoes I can remember today peeling potatoes for the kids tea and in that moment you kind of think right okay how do I deal with that but you don't and then I just thought right okay I can either do I know it was like a few months after that because I just had a baby as well. So I had a tiny baby and it was a conversation that I had with myself. I was on the floor playing with Harry and I just thought, I don't want to be a mum that will bring this tragedy into my kids' lives. So at that point, I made a decision. Right, I can do two things. I can either let this tragedy take over my life or I can change And so I decided to change. (laughs) Well, I would imagine that just, you know, what us mums would consider the normal daily chores of getting the kids tea together. It's no surprise that you jump from peeling the potatoes to a few months later because it takes that long to process that kind of grief, I think. Yeah, I think we didn't process it because obviously we had the murder trial. That was five weeks trial. I travelled every day down to Kent so that was like 200 miles a day oh about 400 miles (laughs) there and back every day we had that we couldn't have the funeral till like the year later so it was kind of 
we were on the go the whole time. We didn't, even when I was in, somebody asked me um, a few weeks ago, well, how did you manage in the courtroom? I'm like, because I disassociated myself. It wasn't kind of my sister. It wasn't, it was just someone. I just really uh, disconnected. So it wasn't until about a year later where I found myself, I couldn't go out the house. I was making excuses up that I couldn't go shopping. I didn't want to take carry out. I took the kids in school. So it wasn't until about a year later that it actually um, hit me. This was something tragic. This was a major thing. I tried to hide it. I didn't let anybody know because people do change when they know you've gone into autopilot. And I, I can speak from experience when my dad died nearly 13 years ago and I dealt with all the probate and the funeral and and everything and it was fairly sudden we had a couple of months notice that was it death I would say is one of those things that you're never prepared even if you know it's coming so when something seriously happens out of the blue that leads to you almost being in a tv show and the drama that's going on around that it, it Processing that as a reality when you know it as as a fiction is the first layer of trying to cope. And and I don't know about you, Anne, but I have blanks in my memory because I know things happened when people ask me specifically about certain episodes and moments in time, I'm a blank because I just dealt with it and got it done to move on than hang on to it yeah I think you just go on autopilot and I do beat myself up and I feel I really the guilt that actually I didn't think about it even in that courtroom I didn't think that she I saw pictures and everything and I, I didn't still associate it with my with my beautiful sister it's kind of I just disconnected from everything and I think that's why I hit quite low I went in depression and things like that because I disconnected from life it's almost a form of denial you go into autopilot don't you you switch everything off you switch all your emotions because it's too much but where were we ever taught in life how to deal with loss we weren't and there's no help book is there no, and there was nothing because you get, especially, uh, I think when you lose a sibling, it's like my mum, I don't know how my parents have have got through this, but it's kind of everybody was focusing on them. It's like, oh, it must be awful to lose a child, which I, I think it would be. I'm not saying it isn't. But for me, standing in the sidelines, I'm almost wanting to shout, like, I've lost a sister. What about me? Yeah. yeah. How do I process my kind of loss? But you can do two things in that kind of situation. I could have just accepted it and I didn't. And I went into helping people. So that was a good thing. I'm going to just ask a quick question of you, Anne. How do you now celebrate your sister? On the day she died in November, I normally have a day off. So I go and have a walk. I do remember her. If I feel sad, I will cry. A lot of people say to me, oh, but it's 20 years ago. You should feel happy about it. And I'm like, no, I'm still extremely sad. (laughs) I'm just gesticulating in the background because that's rubbish. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah, but it is. it was a very tragic. We live with it every day because the guy's in prison still. We've st- I've still got to cope with the prison service every now and again. They'll ring up and we need to do stuff uh, to keep him in there. So it just never goes away. I don't think any loss does. I think you just learn to live with it. Um, it's how you carry that forward. And I think that was kind of why I asked how you celebrate her. I'm much the same. I lo- My dad's birthday's in November, so I always make sure I have the day off and we do something. He was always the last to leave a party. Um, <laughs> we lost him on Christmas Eve. So Christmas Eve... Oh. Christmas Day, I don't know how I cook dinner because we have a party in honour of my dad. It's dreadful, really. I mean, his timing's impeccable. (laughs) But you have to kind of carry them forward in some way and find that positive, even though it is sad. Yeah, but I mean, if that's your emotion on that day is sadness, then cry. The amount of times I've been told, like, oh, you should be happy. Remember her as she is. I'm like, I do. But still on that day, I'm very sad and that's fine. So I go by the sea normally. Yeah, it's normally the things that are happening that you know full well that they would be relishing being involved in that moment, isn't it? Those are the moments that catch you out. I know I've learned to just sort of almost acknowledge and go, yeah, you would have enjoyed this. It's hard. Yeah, it's really hard to go down to my parents because I don't see them very often, probably once or twice a year. But my dad was 80 in August um, last year. I didn't really want to go, but I did go down there with my other sisters. And it was a gaping hole. Even after 21 years, we don't speak about her normally. It's kind of where we don't do that kind of thing anymore because it just reminds us all of that hole. Yeah. I had counselling afterwards. That was a bad choice. But I lost my whole family. It wasn't just my sister I lost because I didn't want to put flowers on the grave on her birthday. My mum wouldn't speak to me for months after that because she was processing her grief in her way. I want to process it in my way. My other sisters are processing it in their way and we just collided. But so this thing about the prison, my dad doesn't want to be involved my sister won't speak to me and for the parole board I have to submit something so she won't get involved in that so you've got no support because we're all trying to deal it in the same way but we don't have conversations about her at all um it was funny my dad was in hospital really ill just had an operation he was whizzed back down and I think something went wrong he had complications. He must have died that day and then came back. And so the next day I saw him, he spoke about Susan the whole time. And that was the first time in 20 years that he just, he'd speaking about it. He would say things like, oh, I wonder what she would be like now. Because um, I don't know about you, but when you lose someone, they're frozen in time, aren't they? Yeah. They're frozen. She was like 30 something when she dies. I can't see her any older than that. That's weird, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I think as well, you get to a certain age and you realize something happens. So clearly, you know, perhaps on that table that day in the hospital, something happened. And I think you do realize that you can't live with regret. So you've got to do the best to address those things. There are people to speak to. I mean, I've had all sorts of challenging circumstances and one thing triggered something that went back to my childhood and I went ended up getting a referral and I spoke to a counsellor at Mind who was brilliant because sometimes the things that you expect to talk about are not 
really what is the cause of things. No, and sometimes this trigger of losing someone, it triggers off so many much more, doesn't it? If you can honour that person, then you're doing the best by them in your own way. I spoke to someone and her aunt had been murdered or something and she wanted to do something about it, to speak up about it. But I don't think that's where my place is. My place is to actually help people to overcome any adversity. It doesn't matter what it is because you can do one or two things. You can fall over and just not get up again or you can get up even stronger. And so I want people to read my books that I published that they can get up and they can be stronger and then they can help other people. Yeah. Yeah. So that's my message. Book number four has got to be about grief somewhere along the line. And uh... I think you've got to pick your own fights, haven't you? Because I'm thinking, I do actually want to write a film about it. I wrote it when I was doing a new course. It's one of those things that I think that the, when the timing is right, the opportunity will arise and you'll yeah. honour her in the best way. I think that you've got to deal with it in your own way, haven't you, and pick your fights that you're passionate about. Yeah. What a life you've led so far. <laughs> life has kind of thrown itself at you, really, hasn't it? And you've carried on. You've picked yourself up. You've kicked ass. Yeah, I've kicked, kicked my ass, that's for sure. <laughs> uh, but you don't think when people hear my story or they think oh god you're very courageous and I'm like no I'm not I'm just a person that has made a decision in that moment am I going to let it affect me am I not no it does affect me every day but I'm carrying on I don't think I'm courageous or brave or anything I just made that decision you're dealing with the hands that you've been dealt yeah it's just life it's not kind of when you think People may be going through other things, don't they? Might that I wouldn't experience, but I've experienced those things for a reason. Not sure what they are just yet. <laughs> I, I I agree with you. You know, adversity, resilience um, builds, and then those experiences are there for you to be able to help others. I truly believe that it's an incredible story. It's, it's been a great conversation to have with you today. If the listeners want to pick up the conversation and carry on, we've got our website now where we'll put some of your stuff. But if they're on their phones or on their their PCs listening and they just want to quickly pick up with you, where's the best place for them to find you? And they can go to my website, which is uh, forwardthinkingpublisher.com and they'll find all the information there. Now, I hope you found that really useful. Some of the tips that Anne gives you. Do make sure that you carry the conversation on with Anne after the show. I know that self-publishing, I did have some help. I have to admit, it was too big a task for me. I wish I'd met Anne sooner. But of course, once you have a conversation with somebody that sticks in your mind, like Anne did, I've been able to introduce her to Lewis Ellis, who was in The Apprentice. And I've also passed her on to David Parry, who is struggling with getting his memoirs written. So, of course, this is all what we talk about here on the show, which is carrying those conversations on after that first conversation. Have you got a book that you need to write? Or do you know somebody that's struggling with that idea? Come on, let's join it all up. Message the show, let me know, or get in touch with Anne simple. There is a real benefit to having a book. And of course, 
it's just great to be able to go, let me send you the book in the post. You can get it on Amazon. It's on special offer for the Kindle. And what can I say? I'd be really, really pleased if you read it, if it helps, if it gives you one tip, a review would be wonderful. So it takes for me just really to wrap up and say, if this is the first time you're listening, please make sure that you go and follow the podcast. You can do that by clicking the three ellipses at the top of my podcast page. Make sure your settings are set to automatic downloads and you're never, ever going to miss an episode. And of course, once you get there, you can go back and listen to all the episodes that you've missed. And Spotify, they've changed it from the green button. It's now a little square button. Who knew? But don't forget, you can find out more about my book through the show notes. And we have our own website where the guests are leaving you special offers, resources and tips to download. It's at makingconversationscount.com. I do hope you've enjoyed the show. Next week, we've got the lovely Kim Adele Platts. What would you say to the people that you love and care about, whether that's your children, whether it's your family, whether it's your closest friends? You want to be there for them, don't you? You want to be there to say, do you know what? Give it a try, because even if you fail, what's the worst that can happen? We'll still be here.